All right, well, good morning. How are you all doing this morning? Good, good. All right, before I get started, well, let me introduce myself. My name is Nathan. I am the children's pastor here at Hope Fellowship. I am honored that Pastor Mark has asked me again to come back and speak. I'm happy I didn't ruin it too bad the first time I spoke and that he felt like I could speak again. So I'm honored to be continuing our series, That You May Believe. In the book of John, we are in John chapter 3 specifically today. So if you want to turn to that, you can. Um, But before I do begin, I would like to preface this statement. Bless you. I'd like to preface this statement with two things. The first, just like the announcement said, I'm the children's pastor here, so I get to do this. I, I'm going to do a little shout out. Who here has signed up for the trunk or treat? Anyone? This is going to be awkward if there are zero hands. Yes, thank you, Drew. Come on, Drew. Excellent. And David, thank you. Awesome. So the two most important things at a trunk or treat, what are they? Just shout them out at me. Okay, I said two. Were we not? All right, we're not even listening this morning. That's not good. All right, two things. So candy is one. What about the other one? A trunk. Thank you, my wife. A trunk. Yes. So we have some trunks out there ready to go and going to be decorated, but we need some more. So this is my shameless plug that it would make me so happy and it would make God really happy. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Do not. No, no. But if you can, and if you have a a really creative mind, we would love it if you could decorate your trunk. The second thing, um, the second thing that I would like to preface this sermon with today is that we are introducing and we're going to be talking about this very Christianese phrase uh, called born again. Everyone say born again for me. Born again. We're talking about that this morning. And so what I want to do before we get started is I want to explain what kind of phrase this is because I understand that in this room today we have non-believers, people that have maybe never opened the book up, the Bible up before, um, and they, they don't really even know what that word means. And I don't want them to feel left out because we're saying a Christianese type phrase. I understand that there are new believers in the room that are trying to figure out their faith. They're still working through what that means um, to follow Christ. And then I understand that we have believers in the room that have been believers for 5, 10, 50, 100 years. Not 100. Pastor Mark isn't here today. Um, yeah, I just have to throw that in there always. Um, but no, so what I want to do is I want to preface what type of phrase this is. Because, and, and for me, the, the thing that always comes to my mind when I see phrases like these in the Bible, I always think of these southern sayings that you all have. Notice two things. I said you all, so I did not say y'all. So that tells you I'm not from the south. And I still did not include myself as a southerner. Nothing against southerners. My parents, I was born in Michigan. They raised me in Tennessee, though, um, and I was raised a northerner. They raised me a northerner. So I missed out on these cultural things that you can only get by living in the South, things like biscuits and gravy, uh, sweet tea. Yes, there is a place where sweet tea does not exist. Um, Let's see what else. Two-syllable words becoming one-syllable words. For instance, when we came down here, uh, what is that thing that you call when you wrap yourself out of, when you get out of the shower? What is that called? towel but when you come down here they say tail right they say tail you gotta get a tail around yourself and so you experience things like that Uh, and then also these odd southern sayings that just do not make sense to me but it's because i'm not from the culture and i haven't lived here but surprisingly the person who has used these phrases the most in my life is none other than mark gaskew our head pastor And because he's not here today, I get to share a few of my favorite Southern PM sayings with you all today, and he cannot stop me. And excuse me, as I do feel like I have to read these with a Southern accent. The first one, road hard and put up wet. I don't even know what that means. I know he explained it to me, but I had checked out already because I was trying to figure out, what did you just say to me? Are you talking about a road? Can you... Put up a road wet. But that's not my favorite one. My favorite one that he's ever said, and I genuinely do have like 30 to 35, would you say? Yeah, 30 to 35 sayings. 
And this is my favorite one. Would you like a little poop with your brownies? Let it simmer. Would you like a little poop with your brownies? I don't know what we were talking about, but I know for a fact we were not talking about brownies, and I know for a fact we were not talking about poop. But this man said this to me, and my first reaction was taking it literally. I said, of course I don't want poop with my brownies. Who would, who would want that, right? But I think that that one means that um, something good with a little bit of bad makes it bad, all bad. I think that's what it means, but I'm not exactly sure. All of this to say, before I get way too off track, all of this to say is that those southern sayings are supposed to s- strike a sense of familiarity with us that point us to a deeper meaning. And just like that, the phrase that we're talking about today, born again, that phrase is supposed to sense, strike some sense of familiarity with us and then point us to a deeper understanding and a deeper meaning. So before I get more off track, will you guys please pray with me and for me? Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We pray just over this time that we have together today that it's not me standing up here, but it's you, God, that it's not me speaking, but it's you speaking, God. Use my mouth, use my heart, use these words, all for your glory and the proclamation of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12-ish. We'll see. We'll see. All right, John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews that came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, and listen to this question today, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now you may be thinking, Nathan, I am confused. And I would be the first to admit that for an entire week, you can ask my wife for an entire week, I would keep coming out of our office second bedroom study thing and say, Cassie, I have no idea what's going on in this text right now. I am so confused. There were so many things that were like, why is John including this? Why is Jesus responding in this way? But as I started to work through it, I started to see that, yes, there was actually purpose to every single piece in this text. And what I did was that I articulated my confusion into questions so that I could find the answer to those questions. And that's how we're here today. So I've come up with three questions today um, that I believe are strewn throughout this passage. And I also believe that these are the three questions that Nicodemus himself is asking Jesus. These three questions today that we'll be going through and answering are, what does it mean to be born again? How are we born again? And what does our new life look like? So let's start with the first question. What does it mean to be born again? I believe here that Jesus answers that question in the first three statements that he makes, all starting with truly, truly. Can everyone say truly, truly for me, please? Oh my gosh, I love it. Excellent. That's what we do in Hook Kids all the time. It really keeps you guys on track. Now, Jesus says three truly, truly statements that are all radical during this time and in this culture because he is 
he is entering and, and, and exemplifying a new qualification to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus says anything, we need to listen, right? But when he says truly, truly, he basically means drop what you're doing and look at, look at me because it's about to go down, right? And in fact, it does go down because of these three statements that he makes. The first truly, truly statement that he makes. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to be saved, in order to enter eternal life, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, that you have to be reborn. And Nicodemus' response here is perfect because if this was me hearing this for the very first time without any further explanation, without any context behind it, I would have probably reacted like Nicodemus does here. How can I be reborn? You mean I have to go back into my mother's stomach. My wife got mad at me because I said stomach. I know it's not a stomach. I know it's a uterus. But I'm just going to say stomach because I don't want to say uterus so many times. I've already said it twice and I'm uncomfortable. So, stomach. <laughs> I'm only saying it twice. Stomach. I would be very scared and I would lose a lot of hope at the realization that the only way to have eternal life would be able to put my 6'2", 179-pound self back into poor Rhonda sitting in the middle pew. Stomach. It's impossible. I can't do it. I'm sorry to make you uncomfortable, Mom. I can't do it, though. That Nicodemus here is not understanding that just like the southern sayings that we talked about earlier, that Jesus here is trying to strike some sense of familiarity with Nicodemus in order to point him to a deeper meaning and a deeper understanding of what the, what the phrase born again means. But this is one of my favorite parts about this scripture is that it shows us that Jesus here is having a very personal conversation with Nicodemus because he doesn't slap him upside the head and say, no, you idiot, this is what it means. He just goes on and he further explains it in his next truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That Jesus here distinguishes two different births in our life. That we have a fleshly birth, and when we are born into this world, we are born into a sinful Genesis 3 broken world. And that flesh cannot produce children of God, flesh can only produce children. But then he says, but you must be reborn of the Spirit, that we have a second birth in this life that is brought about by Christ's Spirit entering us through belief, which we'll talk about in a little bit later. But here Nicodemus is still confused because Jesus is, Jesus is introducing a new and uh, confusing qualification to be in the kingdom of God, to receive eternal life. For Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, a teacher of the God of Israel. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. It says even he's a teacher of the Pharisees. That means he's an expert theologian to the point where he's teaching the people who are expert theologians. That he is super smart, but yet he is confused about this new idea because Nicodemus' qualifications are a little bit different than what Jesus is introducing to him right now. Nicodemus' qualifications are that, one, you have to be born into the bloodline of Israel, that you have to be born of the family that was receiving the covenant of God. That, two, once you're born into that family, then you have to be circumcised. And that circumcision shows the, the, that you receive the promise that God has given you. And then the third thing that you must do is that for the rest of your life, you have to follow thousands and thousands and thousands of rules and commandments in order to be holy enough to enter into heaven. And then finally, if you ever break any of those thousands and thousands and thousands of rules, you then have to sacrifice something in order to be forgiven for what you've just broken. That is this very exhausting process that Nicodemus is living in, but it's what he's been taught, and it's what he's been teaching for years and years and years. And Jesus here is coming in, and he's saying, no, 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 no. What you're believing right now, that's not the qualification anymore. There's only one qualification now, and that's that you are reborn through me, my spirit. 
that Nicodemus here is confused, not because he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, but because he does understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is shaking the very foundations of Nicodemus's faith. I don't know if you guys have ever been in an experience like that where somebody comes up with a better argument than you or somebody brings up a new point. You're like, oh, I never thought of it that way, but now a pillar of my faith, now a very foundational piece of my faith, like predestination and free will, like infant baptism, like anything that, if any of that, those things get shaken, it really, really shakes you up and it takes you a while to get it. For Nicodemus, I feel like a Michael Scott quote sums up perfectly how he was feeling. Michael Scott is from the show Office. He's very wise. And what he says here is, I knew exactly what to do, but in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do. That's exactly how Nicodemus is feeling, right? He's like, I know exactly what Jesus is saying, but in a much more real sense, what? Right? Like, he doesn't understand this. He's getting caught up because at the moment he has believed something for so long that he's not ready to let those pillars crumble. He's not ready to let that foundation of his own faith go away yet. And in this confusion, it brings us to our third and final truly, truly statement. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, the Pharisees, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That Jesus here is wondering how an expert theologian, a man who is teaching not just people, but also other Pharisees, other expert theologians about who God is, is not understanding this. And it confused me too when I was reading this too because I was like, it seems like all the variables are going the right way. All the variables are adding up in order for Nicodemus to be saved, right? Like he's come to Jesus. In the middle of the night it says he's come to Jesus. He's searching for answers. He's asking the right questions, right? Look at Jesus' responses. He's asking the right questions. He has the best person to explain this concept of being born again to him because it's Jesus, right? Like everything is pointing in the direction that Nicodemus should be born again and we should have a happy ending. And while it doesn't tell us that he has has a happy ending, my thing is, why couldn't he get it? Why couldn't he understand this? And I believe it's because sometimes in our life, we can have all of the evidence, all of the facts right there in front of us, and we can still choose the reasons not to believe rather than the reasons to believe. In my own life, this has happened. My parents are vegans. Now, before you go and think that they are absolutely crazy, they are crazy, just in their own way. That's not a part of their craziness. That a couple years ago, my dad was having heart issues, and so he decided to research ways that he could improve his health and strengthen his heart. And after reading articles, books, talking to a doctor and friends' doctors and blah, 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 right? All of this research, he's come up with the fact that people statistically live longer if they cut out dairy and meat in their own life. He's shown us the facts, right? He's shown us all that. And yet, like most vegans, they talk about the fact that they are vegans all the time. If you know a vegan, you don't even have to be talking about food, and they can bring up the fact that they are vegans, right? And also, like most vegans, they try, have tried to convince me, my sisters, my brother-in-laws, my wife, luckily not my nephews yet, they're only two, but they'll probably start around four or five years old, that they've tried to convince every single one of us to be vegans. And let me ask you, do you think that I'm a vegan? No. Oh, wow, we got all no's. Yes, that's exactly right. I am not a vegan. I was expecting like one yes at least. But it's the reason I'm not a vegan, though, is not because I don't trust my dad. It's not because I don't trust the evidence and facts that he's placed in front of me. The reason is because I have chosen not to do it rather than the reasons to do it. That I have not had an experience in life that has forced me to do it a different way than how I've done it for the past 22 years. That I've eaten meat, I've eaten dairy, I've eaten McDonald's every single day at one point in my high school career. I ate McDonald's every single morning. And look, I am still this size. I'm not a builder. I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm not fat. I'm just scrawny Nathan, right? 
And, it's be- and so nothing has forced me to become a vegan. No health issues have forced me to become a vegan. How I've done it has been good for me. Therefore, I don't need to change. And just like me, Nicodemus, he's not trying to be convinced to be a vegan, but he has all of this evidence in front of him. He has the literal incarnate God standing there in front of him. And yet Nicodemus is stuck because he has done something for so long and his life has been going pretty well. He's a man that has outstanding wealth probably. He's a man that has uh, recognition in his community. He has all of these things. So why would he want to change? Why would he need to change? That Nicodemus has missed the point that being born again is not a literal birth, but it's a spiritual, radical, inward change and shift that happens in our life. So, how can we avoid being like Nicodemus? How do we be reborn? How can we be born again? How how does this happen for us? I know what it means to be born again now, but what does it mean? How can we be reborn? And I believe that the answer is found in John 3.16 and 17. If you know John 3.16, read it or say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. These two verses show show two really important things about God's character and God's nature. The first thing that it shows is that for God so loved the world, that God's love and salvation is not just for a specific group of people anymore, but it's for the entire world, that it's universal, that our obedience, that God's love is not contingent on our obedience, on our belief, on anything that we can do, but that God loves us no matter what. God loved the world. The world is sinful. The world is broken, and yet God still loves it. Hear that today. In today's society, that word love is thrown around a lot. But what I want you to hear today is that it does not matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how bad you've been or how good you've been. It doesn't matter the kind of people that you like. All that matters is that you are you and God loves you. God's love is not conditioned on anything that we can do. The second thing is that God has given not a temporary sacrifice, but an eternal sacrifice, an eternal atonement that satisfies all past, present, and future sins through his son, Jesus, and his death, burial, and resurrection. And third and final, that he has an eternal purpose for us, that it's not just something to bring about this brief satisfaction, this brief happiness that we receive here on earth, but it's something that's going to give us this eternal joy, this eternal peace, and this eternal rest only found in Jesus. And that the way that we receive those things, the way that we are reborn, is that we believe. It's simple, right? All we have to do is believe. Well, Nathan, what do I believe in? And I'm so happy that you asked that question today. What we believe in is not entirely found in John 3.16. Before you rush the stage and call me a heretic, let me explain. John 3.16 is important because it shows the love that God has for us, the sacrifice that he has made for us, and the eternal purpose that he's giving to us. But John 3.16 is not the full, complete gospel. John 3.16 is the precursor and the post-effects of the gospel. The full gospel is that Jesus came to a world that was condemned, not condemning it, but came to save it. And the way that he saved it, the gospel, is that he died, was buried for three days, and on the third day, he rose again, defeating all sin, death, and darkness, and evil in this life. That's the gospel. That's how we can be reborn, is by believing in that. And when we believe in that, we step out of our old sinful life and into a new eternal life through Jesus' spirit. That what it means to be born again, how we, are be, how we are reborn, is that we believe in Jesus. We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And that whatever Jesus does, we exemplify. Wherever Jesus calls, we follow him. That with every single ounce, aspect, and part of our life, we are trying to follow Jesus for the rest of our lives. That's what it means to be born again. That's how we are born again. The gospel is, is simple. Because it's not a lot of rules. It's not a lot of steps that we have to keep up with. It's not a lot of commandments that we have to make sure that we're always keeping, right? However, it is challenging at times because of what it calls us to do, what Jesus calls us to do, which is step out of our old life, to die to our old life, and to follow Jesus, not just one time, but daily. To be obedient in the call that Jesus has for us to follow him and leave our old life behind. Nathan, it doesn't say anything about obedience. It all says I have to do is believe. Well, let me share a story with you about a rich young ruler who potentially thought the same thing and was a little bit wrong. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. That's Jesus speaking about himself. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, yeah, all these I've kept. Good to go. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Listen to what Jesus says. Come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. While in John 3.16 it says nothing about obedience, obedience and belief are synonymous pieces of our faith. That you can't have belief without obedience, but you can't have obedience without belief. Here, this rich young ruler had his unbelief shown in his unwillingness to obey Jesus. And it's this interesting idea that comes to us, this theological theme throughout the Bible that comes to us through this story. And John, Pastor Mark says it all the time, it's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That God is sovereign, that God creates those places to be obedient, to believe in our life. And yet we have a responsibility to respond in obedience to him when he calls us to come and follow. The rich young ruler, though, mistook that word responsibility. And I think some of us in our lives do this as well, that he mistook that word responsibility for the word effort. That he thought he had to follow a lot of good commandments. He said, Jesus, what good deed must I do? He had mistook the word responsibility for effort, not realizing that he's not called to follow every single one of those commandments. He's called to follow Jesus. That obedience is not everything, but obedience is an essential part of our belief. Earlier I said God's love is not contingent on our belief and obedience. And that is completely true, that God is going to love you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. But while that remains true, a relationship with God is contingent on our obedience and our belief. Hear that today, that God is going to love you no matter what, but if we are not obedient in his call, if we do not believe him in his death, burial, and resurrection, if we do not place him as our Lord and Savior, then we will not have a relationship with him. We are reborn when we obey Jesus' call to believe in his death and resurrection. We step out of our old temporary life and into our new eternal life through Jesus. So what does our new life look like? What should our new life look like in this new spiritual rejuvenation and renewal? What should that look like? And John lays out what that should look like in the final parts of John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Read this with me. And this is the judgment. 
The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That John writes of these two ideas pitted against each other, darkness and light. He makes it seem really black and white, and I think this is where we can struggle in our life. This is where I have struggled in my life, is to understand this concept of coming from darkness to light. And so what I want to do is I want to illustrate it in this way today. We're going to turn off all the lights. So no one panic. This is purposeful. We are turning all the lights off on purpose. I know it's already pretty dark in here, but we're just going to turn off even more lights. Uh, the last like three or four that are, that are on. <laughs> and so what we're going to do is we're going to turn off all the lights and then I'll, I'll start talking again. So Mike, if you want to turn off the lights for me, that'd be great. Perfect. So we have this idea of darkness and of light. Living in the darkness, I'm going to get my steps in today, and living in the light, right? These are the two ideas that he gives against us. What it means to live in the darkness, the reason I think we, that it, we struggle to understand this is, because, is when he's talking about darkness in this passage, he's talking about a life without accountability. He's talking about a life that is easy because we are not accountable to a God that holds us to certain standards through his son Jesus, that we are not convicted to act any other way because we have made ourselves to be our own gods. We have set the rules for ourselves so we can do whatever we want within the confines of what our government tells us we can do. That if we're living in the darkness, we can do whatever we want because there's nothing holding us accountable and there's nothing convicting us to move anywhere else other than the darkness. I'm going to add this other illustration really quickly. I play golf with my friend on Mondays sometimes and we do mulligans. I don't know if you know what that means, but I think I have probably re-hit a shot around eight times, right? And the reason I can do that is because there's no one holding me accountable, and I have basically made my own rules to golf in order that I can break 100 on 18 holes, right? That I make my own rules. I do whatever I want on the golf course because there's no one holding me accountable. That in the same way when we're living in the darkness, we live this easy life. We live this life without accountability because there's no one telling me to do otherwise. But that's not what Jesus calls us to do. That's not what this new eternal light that he's giving us through his spirit should look like. Mike, you can turn the lights back on so we can, we can see. Thank you. What he's calling us to do is to live in the light. And this is where I believe it's challenging because in my life when I was living in the darkness, I thought that I had to somehow teleport from the darkness to the light. And I don't have those superpowers that I, I didn't understand that it's a process of moving from darkness to light in our life. It's a process of moving uh, of a life without accountability to a life with full accountability found in Christ alone. That the challenging part is that we have to realize in each of our lives that when we are called to this new life, that we are called to do a continuous journey to the light, to accountability in Christ and the other thing that we really struggle with is that we realize somewhere along the road that we can settle at any point in this journey wherever we are. That we can choose to settle for any point in this life of accountability. That if I'm living in the darkness, I can settle in the darkness because, well, I may even see that there's a light over there, but honestly, my life is easy. Why would I do something that this guy is telling me to do that's going to be challenging, that's going to challenge me? I like my easy life. I like this. Or maybe you've taken this step and you are a new believer and you've accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, believing in his death, burial, and resurrection, and you're standing here, and all of a sudden you're like, well, God, I don't want to give you my whole life. Can I bargain with you on some things? You've forgiven my sin, so I can keep going on however I want to go, right? My life can keep looking exactly how it looked before this born-again whole, whole born-again thing. 
Because there's not, you know, that's, that's fine. Well, I have grace. Or maybe you're somewhere down here and you're like, all right, God, I'm going to try my best not to sin. But if I do, it's okay because I have grace. But I'm going to try my best not to sin. But if I do, it's okay. While those two things are true, while we do have grace, if you are settling for any point other than the full life found in Christ, if you're settling anywhere over there, then you are you don't have the full costly grace that Jesus gave to us on the cross. You're living in this cheap, knockoff version of this grace. Now, really quickly, if it feels like I'm pointing fingers, know that I am pointing fingers first at myself. I fail to do this every single day in some aspect of my life. I fail to, to keep following Jesus, right? But this is the thing. If we settle anywhere, we're settling in an idea of cheap grace. That's not what God is offering us through Jesus and his, his son on the cross. I want to um, quickly share a quote from Dietrich Quote, quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read this book, I suggest you do. It's incredible. It's convicting. It's amazing. This book, he writes of this idea of cheap grace and costly grace. He describes cheap grace as this. He says, cheap grace means the justification of the sin without the justification of the sinner. That this grace does everything for us, and so everything in our life can remain just as it was. But then he goes on to write about costly grace, and this is what I want us to listen to today. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow completely. And yet it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs man his life. And it is grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. It is costly because it cost God the life of his son, and it is grace because God did not think his son too much of a price to pay for our life, but gave him up for us. Grace, he writes, is the incarnation of God. Grace is Jesus. That's what we're called to live in, that kind of grace, that we're willing to go sell everything that we have just to get a piece of that grace that he offers to us. And I'll be the first to admit that I have failed, like I said, in this process. And in a moment of honesty, the, the, the part where I fail this the most, the part where I fail to live in this life of accountability the most, is in the call to ministry. Not vocational ministry, but the ministry that each of us are called to when we accept this call to follow Jesus. To go share the gospel, to make other disciples, to make people who believe into believers. That I fail to do that. And, and I'll tell you an example that I used to do, and, and honestly sometimes that I still do, is that when I see a stranger off in the distance, and you know how you get that little twinge, like, hey, go talk to that stranger. Go share the gospel with them. Go have a conversation with that person sitting by, by themselves at a table or something like that. When you get that little twinge, and it's the spirit working inside of you, I've said before in my life, mm, God, you know, that person could be a murderer. I have a wife. I would hate to leave her by herself. I can't do that. That's not godly. I'm going to leave him. Somebody else will get it. You got it. You're in control, right? You're sovereign. All good. And I have disobeyed that commandment the times in my life that i have settled though looking back and looking right now the times and the places where i'm settling in my life are the times where i'm concentrating more on the sin in my life than the person who is rescuing me from that sin the times in my life where i'm settling are the times 
that I'm not looking to follow Jesus, but I'm looking at what I can do to fix it, what I can do to take the next step to Jesus. But in reality, and the best part of this whole thing that I've been talking about, is that it's not us moving us towards this light. It's not us taking physical steps, but it's Jesus grabbing on and saying, all right, let's go, come on, start walking, right? Like living a life in accountability is living a life where Christ is holding us accountable. Christ convicts us when we settle in these places. And Christ sometimes gently, but a lot of times forcefully, turns us back around when we start running back to this life without accountability and points him back to Christ. That's what this means. And the best part of all of this is the fact that it is a gift from God that he does that for us. Jesus is a gift from God that he does that for us. This process is extremely difficult. It's challenging. But it's also freeing because John writes, if you're living in the darkness, you're rooted in your fear of being exposed. If you're living in the darkness, you're living in that lie, you're constantly scared that somebody's going to turn on a switch and people are going to see you for who you truly are. But then John writes as well that living in the light is freeing because it reveals our cracks. And we all got cracks. I know how that sounds. We all got cracks. And when you move into the light... Remember, it's not us moving, but it's Christ moving us. When you move into this light, your cracks get revealed, not in the plumber-type way, but in the spiritual-type way. That our cracks slowly start to get revealed, and we get to see Jesus reveals to us, these are the areas in your life that you need to change. These are the areas in your life that you need to stay away from. When I was addicted to porn in high school, one of the craziest things that I did was I kept Twitter and I kept Instagram. Twitter and Instagram are not bad things, but for me, they were avenues to enter into porn. And for me, though, my excuse was, once again, something that was not following Jesus, but my excuse was, well, I don't want to get out of touch with society. I can't share the gospel if I don't know the society that I'm living in. Therefore, I need to keep Twitter and Instagram. And then I would just keep watching porn, right? It's these things where when we settle, we're forgetting that we're not called to fix our own sin. You're not called to take the next step. What you're called to do is to look to Jesus, follow him, and have him hold you accountable, have him convict you so that you can move closer into this light and be more like him. That's what this life looks like. That Jesus reveals the cracks to us, he holds us accountable, and he convicts us. That's what this new life, new eternal life looks like. That we have a personal Savior, and I try to wrap my head around this because it is such an incredible truth that we have, that we had a God. No other religion would send their God to do what Jesus did for us. No other religion would have their God, an all-powerful, something that's supposed to represent might and strike fear into the enemies. No other religion would have their God come down to earth, become the humans, die shamefully on a cross, one of the most shameful deaths you could do in the early Christian days, in those early years, one of the most shameful deaths that you could die by. No other religion would do that. And yet God sent his son down to us because he wanted to have a life with us in it. He did not need us, but he wanted us to have an opportunity to have him, to have a life with him. That we have a personal savior who walks this road with us, convicting us, holding us accountable, Sometimes just by ourselves, but also by placing people in our life. If you're not surrounded by people who are holding you accountable or who are convicting you, put people in your life who are doing that. That's how we can grow too. And sometimes turning us back to the life or to the light. That he reveals to us the life that he is calling us to live in this new born again life. So, to end with this, and as the band comes out, I want to ask you a question that I encourage you to reflect on, not just on this last song. Take some time to reflect on it. Take some time to pray about this question, but also take it home with you. Have discussions with your family. Have discussions with the people in your life about this. 
I ask you a question. Are you in the dark? Sorry, I asked two questions. I kind of lied. I asked two questions. Are you in the dark? And if you are, what is keeping you there? Extend it more. Even if you're not in the dark, if you're halfway in the light, why? What is keeping you from committing the rest of your life to Christ? What is keeping you, what is holding you back? Are you trying to bargain with God about something in your life that you know is wrong, but you want to hold on to? Are you focusing on the reasons not to believe rather than the reasons why you should be believing? Do you think that God doesn't love you because of something that you have done in your life that you think no one could ever love me for this? Do you think that you are now outside of God's love? Because I can tell you that, once again, we said it earlier, God's love is not contingent on anything that we can do. Are you focusing more on the obedience part, but not the faith part? And you're getting caught up on trying to fix yourself, not understanding that there is a Savior who's already done that for us. And all you have to do is accept that truth and believe that truth in your mouth. Whatever questions you are asking, whatever reasons you are asking, I know this one thing to be true and that I will leave you with today. And that is that Jesus is calling each and every single one of you to a new eternal life. Every single one of you in this room, whether you feel that right now or you don't, whether you understand that right now or you don't, I'm here to tell you that the Bible tells us that Jesus is calling each and every single one of us to a new and eternal life. If you're a non-believer, Jesus is calling you to a new and eternal life. Step out of the darkness. Don't root your fear in, in of being exposed. Don't root your fear in your sin. Don't root your life in your sin, but root yourself in the life of full accountability found in Christ Root yourself in that love. Root yourself in that grace. Root yourself in Jesus. If you are a new believer, I encourage you today. There are going to be times in your life where you are going to settle, but don't settle for that. Keep moving. Look to Christ in those times where you feel like you're lost. Look to those times. Build your relationship with Christ. Read the Bible. Talk to him through prayer. Learn how God speaks to you and learn how you speak to God. Those are the ways that we follow Christ. Those are the ways we have to know him We have to know the God that we're following. We have to have a relationship with the God that we're following. If you've been a believer for 5, 10, 50, in Pastor Mark's case, 100 years, Jesus is still calling you. It's not a one-time decision. It's not a 500-time decision. It's a daily decision to have Christ take that next step for you. It's a daily decision. It's our responsibility to die to our old life, look to Christ, and keep walking to that new eternal life found only in him. He's calling you. All you have to do is obey and believe. I pray today, whether it's today, whether it's in a couple months, whether it's in a couple years, that you will follow him. Step out of your old life and follow him in obedience, faith, and belief. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, pray right now for you to reveal to each of us the cracks that we have in our life. Whether we're non-believers, new believers, or have been believers for years and years, God, I pray that you continue to reveal the cracks to us in our life that we need to change, God. And I thank you that when we are following you, when we do have a relationship with you, that the things that you ask us to do don't even feel like rules or commandments to follow. It just feels like the life that we're supposed to be living. God, I pray for you to answer these questions in these people's hearts today, whether it's, why am I still in the dark? What is keeping me here? Why can't I just beat this addiction? Why can't I just get over these feelings? Why can't I just, God, I pray that you would just provide a peace 
that only you can provide and you put truth in their lives through the people around them, the scripture that they can have at any time and the words that you are whispering to their souls and their hearts, God. We thank you for the fact that it is not us that takes this journey, but it is you through us that takes it. We thank you and we love you. It's your name we pray.